0: Welcome to the Scripts and Scribes Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Fukunaga. For more great interviews and resources on the craft and business of writing, be sure to check out our companion website, scriptsandscribes.com. But first, we have on the show a former journalist, turned TV writer and producer, who's been a writer and editor for numerous publications such as Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, Time, Esquire, Men's Fitness, Details Magazine, and Entertainment Weekly. He went on to launch and produce ESPN Hollywood on ESPN2 before making the leap to scripted television, where he's written and produced for such series as Dirt, Leverage, and most recently was the co-executive producer on CW's Nikita. Earlier this year, he signed a two-year overall deal with 20th Century Fox TV and is currently working as a co-EP on Fox's Sleepy Hollow. Mr. Albert Kim, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I know you're on location in North Carolina working on Sleepy Hollow right now, so I really do appreciate you spending a little of your day off with us. No problem. Now, you have an incredible resume, both in print journalism and in television. Um, can you talk a little about where you're from, what you studied at Princeton, how you got into journalism, and, and that sort of transition to television? Basically, your whole life story up to this point, you could. <laughs> um,
1: where I'm from, uh, I grew up, I was born and raised in New York City, and then moved to suburban New Jersey for middle and high school. Um, I went to Princeton, and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I was uh, pre-med, sort of a typical Asian American kid's path, <laughs> um, but then after uh, college, decided that uh, I wanted to take a little time off, time off before going to medical school, so... Uh, I um, actually had taken the MCAT and had my applications all ready to go, but um, took a little time off. I had always – I worked for four years at the school uh, on, a, on the school's weekly newspaper, so um, journalism was something that was always on my mind. I called a former writing teacher at the school who um, connected me with some of his former students, many of whom were working journalists. And that led to a couple of freelance assignments, uh, which then led uh, to a job at Sports Illustrated. Uh, and that was my first uh, real job in journalism. I was a reporter at Sports Illustrated, uh, which was great. I covered baseball and golf and technology and a bunch of other, other things. I did that for – I actually had two stints at SI. Um, that first stint was almost seven years long. And then I, and then I went to Entertainment Weekly in the mid-90s. Uh, w- which was my first exposure to the entertainment business, um, and that was that was really fun. That was a lot of fun. We were just sort of making things up as we went along. We covered everything. I covered a lot of Star Trek at the time. Um, that was always and that was an interesting transition because at Sports Illustrated, all of the reporting beats were really hardcore, like baseball and football and hockey. And then you got to EW, and then the beats they asked you to cover were like Beverly Hills 90210 or Star Trek or the X Files, um, and I was on the Star Trek beat. Um so i did that uh went back to s i for a little while, and then my last gig at uh, in journalism and magazines at least was at people magazine. Um, I spent three years there and as you said e s p n came to me in the mid around two thousand and five or so mm-hmm. uh, and asked if i'd be interested in running a show for them a show that they were basing off of something I created at s i um, about the intersection of sports and popular culture uh, so uh that was ESPN Hollywood. So um, that was that was an interesting transition. It wasn't something I'd ever thought. I, I'd always imagined I'd spend my entire career in magazines. But uh, after talking it over with my wife, we thought it was an interesting opportunity. Um, uh, I'd always been intrigued by television, but never really had an opportunity. And, and frankly, they were offering a really good deal. So we uh, uprooted the family, moved out to L.A., um, and just as I got out here, the head of the network, head of ESPN, left. Uh, his um, The next guy came in and promptly canceled all of his predecessor's shows, including mine. Wow. So uh, I found myself literally after about two months out, after having made the move with nothing to do out in L.A. So um, I thought for a while about getting back into journalism. but. Uh, after having committed to making that move, psychologically, it felt weird to sort of move right back. Um, and that's when um, I thought about TV writing. You know, it's, Frankly, it was something I had always been interested in. Uh, and this I found myself suddenly in L.A. with nothing to do, a little bit of financial freedom because of the deal. And uh, my, my agent at the time hooked me up with a show that I was starting up, which was Dirt on FX. And that was very fortuitous because Dirt was a show that was that starred Courtney Cox as a magazine editor. Mm-hmm. So they brought me on board as a technical consultant, just to sort of advise them about the reality of the business, and uh, I helped with everything from telling them what the sets should look like to uh, to you know writing little bits of dialogue for Courtney's character that sounded like what an editor would say. Uh, and most importantly, it got me into the writers' room. And so uh, I was in the writers' room for the first time. And they were, they were a great great bunch of people, um, and they welcomed me there. And pretty soon, uh, they asked me if I wanted to write a script for that first season. And then the staff for the second season, um, and it was, all, it was all great. Then the strike killed the show, as it killed a lot of shows. Right. Uh, that, was a, that was an incredibly dicey time, um, because as you remember, no one really knew how long that strike was going to last. And so just as my writing career was starting, everything was upended. Um, but fortunately, it was only a few months. And then after the after the strike, I I got a job on leverage. Um, uh, one of the good things, actually, for me about the strike is it gave me some time to write my first spec scripts. Uh, my introduction into the business was so unorthodox, I didn't even have any writing samples when I joined the Dirt staff. <laughs> um, and the first script I wrote was, was produced for, for the show. So... Um, uh, during the strike, I actually worked on my first spec, which is what got me my job on Leverage, and uh, spent three seasons there, uh, and moved over to Nikita when it started. So, I stayed with Nikita for the run, for year run, and then and then just started here uh, at Sleepy.
0: Having been in a number of writers' rooms, especially uh, starting off at dirt when you were obviously, you know, the new guy in the room, uh, and now being a co EP both on Nikita and Sleepy Hollow. Can you talk about maybe, because uh, we do have a lot of uh, younger writers, a lot of newer writers, aspiring writers, what is sort of expected of newer writers in a writer's room? What are the do's and do not's? Uh, obviously, every writer's room is different, but sort of things that, that newer writers in a writer's room maybe should and should not be doing.
1: Well, my, my introduction to the writer's room was, was a little different. I wasn't a staff writer when I was in the writer's room, I was a technical technical consultant, as I said. Mm-hmm. So uh, my role was a little different from everyone else's. I was there to sort of help ground the reality of the show, give them examples of uh, from reality that might correspond to stories they were breaking, um, and help in that regard. Um, so that's a little different. But in terms of what staff writer duties are, typically you want staff writers to be able to jump in with ideas, help wherever they can, fill in in any capacity that they're able to. As staff writers, you're not really guaranteed a script when you're on staff, So, uh, but you may be asked to do everything from writing parts of scripts to outlines to story documents, even helping put, put together research packets, and you just have to sort of approach it all as um, openly and enthusiastically as possible. You don't want to be... Uh, you want to uh, be a contributor and speak up, but at the same time, you don't want to derail uh, the momentum of where the room might be going. Uh, Your role may not be uh, the same as some of the more senior writers there who who may be trying to uh, steer the direction of of the season or the series itself. So uh, um, even if you have specific doubts, you might want to sort of hold back and think it through before jumping in with those. Uh, You want to be additive, in other words, rather than sort of obstructive in a way, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is good advice for any writer really at any level. Um, but uh, it's really kind of uh, being there and being willing to jump in at a moment's notice for anything that's needed. You know, if uh, someone needs to put together even a log line, sometimes in some rooms um, they'll, they'll farm out the log lines for story documents or outlines. Uh, you could do that. Um for writing, for helping put together recaps, you know, at the beginning of episodes, mm-hmm. um, and of course, when when your opportunity comes to try and uh, put together the cleanest draft you can when you have a script available, um, but it's a little bit of uh, being there, filling in the gaps, being a jack of all trades, um, and trying not to be the naysayer in the room. Uh, I think those are sort of that sort of covers it.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I know a lot of staff writers are hired from within the writing offices, you know, coming from writers' PAs, writers' assistants, showrunners' assistants. But for writers coming in and meeting based on a spec sample, how does that process go? And other than a great writing sample, obviously, what are showrunners looking for in a prospective staff writer?
1: It's all about chemistry. Uh, Putting together a writer's room is really about making sure you have the right uh, pieces because you spend so much time in a room with these people, you want to make sure that you're you're actually enjoying the time you spend there. Uh, it's been said a lot, and it's true. You spend a lot you spend more time with the writers on the show than you do with your own family, so mm-hmm. you don't want to be uncomfortable or feel like you don't want to be with these people. So putting together a staff is a lot of, like casting in a way, making sure you have all the right pieces, people who can a- contribute from different uh, arenas. Um, one of the things I found. I was pleasantly surprised by when I was first taking staffing meetings was one of my concerns early on was since I had had this entire other career, um, I'm obviously not a film school graduate in his 20s. And and I'd always heard Hollywood was such a youth-obsessed town, so that was an issue for me. But one of the things I was really surprised with was a lot of showrunners were really happy that I wasn't a film school graduate in his 20s, that I had other life experiences and, and work experiences that I could bring to the table. And uh, that said a lot to me. That, that indicated that that's kind of what people want in a writer's room, You know, people with a diversity of experiences that they can contribute and use to help shape stories. Um, and so uh, that's what uh, showrunners are looking for with staff writers as well, people who uh, might have backgrounds different from theirs. Um, at that point, when you have your staffing meeting, your stuff has been read, and so you've already cleared the first hurdle. They they most likely like your writing, so they're now just seeing if you're the kind of person who they would want to sit in a small careless room for twelve hours with, um, because that's kind of the reality what what your life is going to be like for the next few months.
0: Now, are they always airless?
1: Uh, I've that's... been in real. I've been in rooms that make you long for. Life in a submarine, but uh, I mean, <laughs> ideally, you want uh, something nice. We had a really—I've um, uh, I've been in rooms that were really nice. I had like you know sunroofs and lots of windows and fresh air and daylight. And I've been in rooms that are little metal boxes. So uh, sometimes, and then a lot of times, you have to break up rooms. So you'll uh, someone's office will double as a secondary writer's room. So you just want to make sure you have all the right snacks on hand. Riders get really cranky if they're not if they're not fed, well fed. <laughs> uh,
0: what are the What are your favorite snacks?
1: Oh God, they're terrible. I mean, I'm <clears throat> I probably have way too many peanut M Ms than I should. But uh, it's interesting, you know, <clears throat> in the sleepy room these days, the biggest snack is the dried seaweed snacks from Trader Joe's, oh, which is always funny to me because <clears throat> growing up as an Asian American kid, I mm-hmm. we'd always had that around, um, and it was something that uh, no one really wanted, but now they're the, they're the newest things.
0: <laughs> um, now, you started writing for TV. That, you said uh, earlier on that that sort of became your transition after uh, ESPN. What was it that about TV writing specifically, episodic TV writing, as opposed to features that, what, what, in other words, why did you pick television as opposed to features in terms of pursuing writing?
1: I, I guess I'd always been more attracted to the television world than, than the feature world. I mean, that uh, just as a fan, I've always been kind of more uh, engaged by television as a narrative form than features. I love features. I mean, I love going to features, and someday I probably will want to write some. But uh, uh, I think my first love was always TV. Even at Entertainment Weekly, I covered far more television than I did than I did the uh, movie world. Um, there's something about the narrative structure of episodic television that appealed to me, the sort of serialized nature of it and the way that the characters can grow and develop. Uh, In my mind, television, when done right, is kind of like a novel, um, uh, an ongoing series of episodic uh, stories, and features can be not exactly short stories, but since they're more self-contained, they're a slightly different form, and um, television has always appealed to me, which is why. I always leaned in that direction. Um, and again, like I said, when I was covering television at entertainment Weekly, that's when I first became aware also of how television was run as opposed to the movie world. And I knew that in TV, uh, the writers were king. Um, television really is a writer's medium, whereas film is a director's medium to a large extent still. Mm-hmm. so uh, I, and that kind of appealed to me too. Also the you know when once I started getting involved in television, there's something about the uh, uh, immediate satisfaction of seeing your work produced. I mean, I can write a sc- television script and uh, I'll be on set a few weeks later watching it come to life, as I am now, as opposed to the feature world where it can take months and even years to see anything you create uh, come to fruition. Uh, so I'm a little, I need a little more immediate
0: gratification. <laughs> uh, and speaking of, of that sort of fast turnaround, do you think that, your background in publication, where you worked on a number of magazines, writing and, and editing, and the turnaround time is much faster uh, than features. Do you think that that sort of helped your transition to television again, where there's sort of a faster turnaround, a lot more collaboration between writers and editors slash, you know, writers, producers uh, in TV, as opposed to uh, features where you can go away for months at a time, work on your own, and then bring something back? Uh,
1: yeah, definitely. I think um, I, I've I lived my entire adult life on a weekly deadline. I mean, every magazine I worked on was a weekly, um, and television as well. So I'm kind of used to that uh, pace and pressure. And uh, it's the pressure doesn't really phase me, and the pace is something I enjoy. So uh, that's... That definitely helped in the transition. Um, I had some feature writer friends who I had dinner with recently, and they were saying that uh, they they had dabbled in television and and just couldn't deal with that um, pace, uh, whereas that's something I actually really enjoy. so it and and from the magazine world, having worked with weekly deadlines, I understood how to do triage when when things starts to fall apart and sort of prioritize uh, the immediate needs versus the longer term needs. Um, and that served me well, both in terms of television production and script writing, uh, as it did in my in my magazine career. So that was an important skill that carried over. Not a lot of skills uh, carry over from journalism to, to uh, narrative writing. Well, the sense of story, I think, is still the same, but the writing is very different. It's a whole different set of muscles. But definitely being able to deal with sort of the pressure of weekly deadlines helped a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, I know you're on location right now. Can you discuss mm-hmm. what some of... A writer's responsibilities are on set on an episode they've written.
1: Well, with television, um, as I said before, it's really a writer's medium, and so the directors in television uh, come and go. Uh, they don't. We don't have the same director from week to week. So the writers are the really the ones there who need to be able to provide the continuity both for characters and and the narrative. So uh, the particular director of the week might not know a whole lot about what's come before and won't know a whole lot about where the show is going. So writers are really important in being able to provide that backbone. Um, And in addition, we're here to do everything from, our our biggest sort of responsibility is making sure that the tone of what the director is doing fits in with uh, the rest of the show, uh, both visually as well as narratively. So uh, we're working with both the director and uh, all the rest of the crew and making sure that uh, everything is being done according to the way we had envisioned it in the writer's room. Um, For me, it's an incredibly important part of the process. It's really being on set and producing a show is really the last stage in writing a script. Uh, I know there are some shows that don't send the writers to set to produce episodes. I I, I I honestly don't know how they make things work because I can't imagine not having someone from the writer's room there to make sure that the vision is how you imagined it. Um, they must just do a lot of toning beforehand with the director and the crew and then uh, possibly a lot of reshoots afterwards if they don't get what they want. Mm-hmm. But uh, to me, it's a really important part of the process.
0: And how far along the process is is a writer's influence continued? In other words, uh, do you, will you continue this through post? Will you sit in on um, editorial and and work through that? Or will you be on to the next episode, writing the next episode?
1: Um, I'll be involved through post. Um, Some of that is continued upon uh, the level you're at. Staff writers and story editors may not, um, when I was a staff writer, I think I'd leverage. I didn't do a whole lot of post at first, but then got involved with it later. But um, yeah, I, I definitely go through with it uh, through editing, through the sound spot, final playback, all of that, um, which again is an important part of the process since the director, the director turns in a cut, but they don't do much with it after that. So uh, it's up to the writer and producers to make sure that uh, it gets carried out the way, especially on wow. a, a show like Sleepy Hollow, where there's a lot of post-production involved, you know, a lot of visual effects. Mm-hmm. Sound design is very important to the show, music, all of that. So uh, it's important to stay involved in the process all the way through. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, talking about leverage, you had mentioned at Dirt, you didn't actually have any sort of writing samples before getting that job. And mm-hmm. obviously, for leverage, you probably did. Although, again, having written on dirt, you, you had work experience, work samples, and you would mention in between the dirt, or between dirt and leverage during the Writers Guild strike, you had actually written writing samples. So I was just curious, what did you write, and did that affect you know, or how that did that affect you getting leverage, or was your work on dirt enough to transition to leverage?
1: No, I don't think my uh, dirt scripts actually played any. Hard in hmm. getting the job on Leverage. As far as uh, what John Rogers and Chris Downey had told me, uh, and they were the they're, they're the co-creators and, and showrunners on on Leverage, um, they read my my spec. I think I benefited from not knowing too much when I wrote that spec. I didn't really know what a um, writing sample was supposed to be, uh, so I didn't really put a lot of thought into it. I just started writing. And in hindsight, I probably would have done it totally differently. But I just started writing about a character I found interesting, which was this guy, uh, kind of an arrested adolescent of a guy in his mid-twenties who was used to um, taking shortcuts through life every way possible. Um, and he runs a blog uh, called How to Cheat, hmm. uh, which is just full of hacks and cons and everything from how to get a free soda out of a soda machine to getting out of a parking ticket, that kind of thing. And... Um, and then he finds out that he's got a ten-year-old daughter he never knew he had. I mean, it's not a original story by any means. I think we've seen versions of this in in a lot of different ways. But uh, again, I didn't know to I didn't know that that was not a good thing. So I just started out with a character that I enjoyed, and then I put him in a situation that he couldn't cheat his way out of, and I saw where the story went from there. And it ended up being kind of this. Um, light, uh, fun, one hour. It's sort of a cross between a comedy and a drama. And I found that people really responded to the tone of it and the characters and, and the emotion in the story. Um, and that uh, that's, that's what uh, John and Chris responded to when they hired me at Leverage. Leverage is a show about a bunch of con artists. This wasn't exactly the same, but the guy, the character was someone who probably fit into a Leverage world. Uh, and they like that. So um, again, I didn't know a whole lot going into writing that sample. What I should and shouldn't be doing. I probably would have, if I had done it later in my career, I probably would have put probably a clearer story engine into the uh, premise. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's almost a lot of people have told me it reads kind of like a short indie film. Um, so uh, if I really had wanted to sell it as a pilot, I I probably should have thought more about the structure of it, but. In a lot of ways, not knowing that stuff helped me. All I did was write something that um, kind of came from my heart and really was something I wanted to see. And uh, I think people responded to that.
0: Right, right. No, and we hear that a lot from writers and uh, managers and agents and you know, telling aspiring writers to don't necessarily write for the market, but write what you want to write because it will show.
1: Um, yeah, I think a lot of people spend too much time trying to be strategic about what their sample should be. They try to figure out, well, you know vampires are in now, and so they try and write a pilot about vampires or or you know that's always hard to time because by the time you're done with your sample and it's being sent around, you know it's maybe it's vampires are out. so uh, and it's zombies now. Um, so it's really hard to do that kind of thing. And then for a while, I think a bunch of people, a lot of people were writing, Kind of showy concepts, you know, the Sex and the City meets The Sopranos, and, and those kinds of those kinds of specs, um, which can be which can get people's attentions, but um, uh, you get kind of uh, tired of reading those as well. So uh, I think the best thing to do is just write something that you would want to see, and uh, because it'll always come through the sense of how interested you, the writer, are is you the writer is and, and the story will always come through mm-hmm.
0: the first season of sleepy hollow i believe had 10 episodes and this one is supposed to be 18 if i'm not uh, mistaken first um, season was 13 13 okay
1: uh, yeah and this is 18 yeah
0: uh, and we have a lot of listeners who again are aspiring tv writers who may have never been in a writer's room uh can you talk a little bit about the process of what goes into breaking a season, and then how episodes are then sort of assigned to the writing staff?
1: It varies from show to show. Uh, um, on Sleepy Hollow, we um, spent a bunch of time, uh, we had the advantage of getting our writers room together relatively early, we had some um, time where we could sort of sit back uh, before production began, and sort of blue sky the process, just talk about where we thought the season would, would and should go. Um, overall, and then sort of mapped out the macro arcs, where we wanted to land by mid-season, where we wanted to go by the end of the season. talked about the characters, what kind of um, arcs and journeys they should be on. Um, Nothing very specific, nothing tied down to specific episodes or plots, anything like that, just sort of really big picture stuff, Um, which is in general, I think, how a lot of rooms work. And then as time gets closer to the start of production, you start getting a little more focused in terms of details, you know, what specific episode one should be in episode two. Um, so when you start drilling down to that level, then you may begin assigning them to particular writers. And all the shows I've worked on, um, we've been fairly room heavy, so uh, even at that process, it's very collaborative. We spend The whole room will help break a story um, and... Uh, get it down to its individual beats. And the level, the detail that you get to is often commensurate to the level of experience of the writer. Uh, More experienced writers may not, you may not need to go as deep into the details as you would with a lower level writer. So if if the episode has been assigned to a lower level writer, we may spend a lot more time in the room getting all the beats just right. Um, With someone who uh, is more comfortable with it, we may get more schematic with, the, with what we do in the room. But, then, but always at a certain point the writer will then go off with what we've done in the room, those, those notes um, fashion and outline which we'll then all read and give notes on, then go to script and the same process goes on. That's pretty much how most of the rooms I've been in work and that's how it works with Sleepy Hollow.
0: Mm-hmm. In terms of network notes, how as a writer producer do you deal with network notes that you may not agree with (laughs) Um,
1: if you find the answer to that let me know (laughs) it would be a great skill to have Um, again situation varies from network to network different networks are different Mm um over a period of time you tend to build working relationships with the executives that cover your show and you get to know how they are and uh, what I'm trying to say is you sort of begin to figure out which notes they really, really want and which ones they're, they're just sort of suggesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of the job, actually, is is actually learning that skill, figuring out when they're really serious about something and when it's just kind of a pitch they put out there. Um, but in terms of dealing with notes, you don't want to do um, – I mean, you hear this a lot. I mean, one of, this, one of the jobs as a writer is to hear the note behind the note. And so uh, you want to just sort of sit down and figure out why they made this note that you are convinced is idiotic and ridiculous. But there's something driving that reaction. And if the people you're dealing with are smart, um, creative, and all of that, and we presume they are, there's probably something there that they're reacting to. So you have to figure it out. You know, I worked on a... One time we'd done a note where essentially the executive had told us uh, they wanted uh, us to give the writer, the a character, uh, a pet of some kind. Mm-hmm. And it seemed so idiotic and uh, it was driving us crazy. But then you thought about it and you realized, well, tr- that was kind of their somewhat lame way of saying they wanted to make the character stand out, give them a little bit of Quirkiness, personality, that kind of thing—something to humanize them as well. So, okay, when you get to that kind of concept, then you can take it as a writer and come up with your own take on how to do that. You know, it may not be just giving the character a parrot; uh, maybe building something into their backstory that that helps. But um, it's uh, the whole idea of figuring out what the intent is behind the note that they gave—the note that you absolutely hated. Um, and then if all if all of that fails, then the, as long as you sort of give it that effort, you can always have a follow up conversation and tell them that you know, not sure that that kind of works for the story, and then you can find out whether they really are sticking to their guns or not.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, writing for shows that are very loosely based on other material like Sleepy Hollow or Nikita, how does that differ in terms of your creative process versus writing something that's Completely original, like dirt or leverage.
1: Um, To me, it hasn't made a whole lot of difference. Uh, With Nikita, Nikita as a franchise has been around for a while and gone through a number of incarnations. Mm -hmm. The Nikita we worked on was the fourth um, fourth uh, of that with that name. So um, we were basically free to take whatever liberties we wanted to, we weren't really bound to any of the previous versions. Mm. If they helped, that would be great, but uh, it's not like we had to stick to any particular kind of uh, established canon. And uh, kind of the same with Sleepy Hollow. Since Sleepy Hollow is really a mashup of a bunch of ideas, both from Washington Irving, you know, the original concept being a mashup of both um, the original Sleepy Hollow as well as Rufan Van Winkle, uh, and then with a dash of a lot of other things, um, apocalyptic lore, um, American history, all of that. Um, it's not like there's any particular, uh, text that we have to stick to. Mm -hmm. Now that doesn't mean there aren't certain things we try to get into many or all the shows. We, we want to try and get a little bit of, um, Secret History of the American Revolution in to a lot of our episodes, something that we call, we started out calling it as a twi- our twisted version of history, so we call it our Twistery. <laughs> um, we try to get in um, our spin or our take on uh, monsters that, and creatures that you may have heard of from legend. Um, this season we've got a, a really scary creature in the woods that lures children out and, and uh, kills them and it's kind of our take on the Pied Piper. Hmm. So, uh, we'll do twists on on those kinds of monsters, um, but we're not really particularly bound to a specific text or any kind of canon in any way. So, in that that sense, um, it's no different than working on an original property.
0: Right. I wanted to talk to you a little bit about your own writing process. Every writer is different. When you are working on an episode, do you lock yourself up in a room, punch it out in however much time you have, and then... Start revising. Are you constantly seeking feedback and working with other writers and bouncing ideas off of people? What is your writing process like when you are working on an episode?
1: When I'm actually in the writing phase, or when I'm breaking a story. When you're actually well, I guess both. Um, Well, it's different. I mean, it's funny. People always ask me uh, how long does it take to write an episode, and it's actually a much more involved question because writing of an episode. It encompasses several different phases. Um, you know, the writing itself can go by fairly quickly. Um, I can go, you know, going from an uh, an outline to a script can be done in a week. But the breaking of story can be very involved. It can take anywhere from a few days to, you know, I've worked on episodes that took months to break. Mm-hmm. So um, there are different phases to to creating an episode. When I'm breaking a story, I partic- I enjoy. Working with other people in the room because I like getting the feedback and hearing the different ideas and seeing if something, seeing how people react to certain pitches. So uh, I'll be very collaborative in the breaking of a story. We'll work together with a lot of other writers. And then once a story is in enough shape to go to outline, then it becomes much more solitary. So I'll take the notes and the beats that we've come up with, and uh, I'll go off. I, I tend to write, write in coffee houses, hmm. so uh, I need I need sort of low level of noise, background noise, to be able to concentrate. If I'm stuck alone in my room at home, I'll just sort of bounce off the walls constantly or I'll find distractions. There's too many distractions there. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of feel like if I'm sitting in a public place, I can't really goof off too much. <laughs> There's sort of eyes on me. So um, I'll go off and write the outline. And the outline can be a few days to a week or so, depending on how involved the story is. Um And then when I go to scripts, again it's the same process. I'll just go into a a Starbucks or a coffee bean, and and then uh, start writing act by act. Uh, For me, the earlier acts are always the toughest um, because that's where a lot of the setup and exposition and all that kind and setting up the threads and narrative arcs start. Uh, So those acts tend to take a little longer. Uh, And then when you get Over the hump, it's a little bit like running downhill, so it'll go a little smoother. Um, But yeah, that's kind of the general process.
0: Mm -hmm. You've written for so many different publications, again, Sports Illustrated, People Magazine, Entertainment Weekly, uh, Details, covering what I can only assume are literally hundreds and hundreds of different events and interviews with different people. Uh, Which one stands out? Do you have any one or two particular favorite events or interviews that just kind of stick with you as incredibly interesting or memorable?
1: A lot of them do. I mean, for me, I think uh, it's not particular interviews, it's uh, events. My first, um, one of the very first uh, baseball postseasons I covered was uh, the 1989 World Series, which Hmm. was the one that uh, ended or was interrupted by the Bay Area earthquake. Yeah. I was sitting in Candlestick Park when the earthquake hit, mm. um, which was, needless to say, an incredible experience and a, a, one of the most surreal nights I've ever had, having to drive back into a black and powerless San Francisco from Candlestick that night. Mm. Um, so that was, you know, being in the middle of kind of major news events always stands out. Um, I've been to a few of the Olympics, you know, and so, uh, those are always kind of memorable as well. Uh, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm a real, really big geek. So the first time I, I walked onto the bridge of the enterprise, that's kind of <laughs> a big thing for me and sitting uh-huh. in the captain's chair, which they normally don't let you do. Um, that was, uh, that was a big thing. Um, cool. so, uh, all of those were uh, really stand out in my memory. I'm trying to remember specific interviews that they kind of blur together after mm-hmm. a while. Um, I remember uh, playing video games with Michael Jackson Really, at one point. Um, he was a huge video game fan. We did the driving game together. And uh, I remember being surprised at how tall he was. He was a lot taller than I imagined. He was probably six feet tall. Really? Okay. Um, and lots and lots of athletes. Again, they sort of blur together in my memory. I'm trying yeah. to think of a lot after we're done. But uh, <laughs> that's what comes to mind right now. Right,
0: And which enterprise... Uh, did you sit in the captain's chair on?
1: I got in at the very end of Next Generation, and okay. I went to go do a story on Voyager, and they were still using Star Trek. Voyager was using a lot of the. Uh, they were yeah. converting the sets from the Next Generation to mm. use on Voyager, so uh, a lot of the. It's funny. You could, they were used for the. They were using them for the sets of the of the Voyager, but on the backs of the sets, you could see there were stenciled marks that said Next Generation still on them.
0: Oh, how funny.
1: So uh, I played golf with Jack Nicklaus once. That was fun. Wow. Um, yeah, a lot of things. Um, it was. You know, I got to indulge in uh, – someone once told me I speak geek in many different languages. So I was <laughs> a big sports fan. I was a big comic book fan. I was a big science fiction fan. And, I, and I've been fortunate that in my career I've been sort of been able to indulge in all of those passions. Um, and uh, that's, that's really been sort of a thread that's run throughout all of my careers.
0: Well, you know you've lived uh, a life worth living, a memorable life. When I ask you, you know, what event or interviews with famous people or experiences with, again, historical famous athletes and actors and whoever, and you can't pick one because they all blend together. <laughs> that's pretty amazing.
1: Either that, or I'm just getting too old. <laughs> um,
0: I, I'll go with my take on it, but that's pretty funny. Uh, <laughs> Now, uh, having worked in television for uh, a while now, but seeing sort of the future of television, you've worked, uh, for network TV, cable TV, but now online TV is becoming sort of a big thing with Netflix and Hulu and even Yahoo kind of coming into the fold. What do you see as the future of television?
1: Yeah, I think that's a big thing. I think all of those, um, new venues are going to be really important in the future. I mean, uh... Obviously, people watch television a lot differently than they did even a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And it started with the advent of DVDs and then has just progressed with uh, the various streaming sites. But, you know, people watch television, you know, the binge watching thing has been well documented. And uh, even if you're not a binge watcher, you know, my wife and I, we let a couple of episodes of our shows sort of build up on our TiVo and then watch them two or three at a time. Um, Even if we're not watching a whole season, we we tend to watch them that way. Uh, And I think that makes a big difference in in both how you approach shows creatively and and as a business. I think um, the shows that tend to hold up the best are shows that are more serialized. I mean, the shows that offer more of an ongoing narrative experience than sort of the traditional procedural shows, um, uh, cop and lawyer shows that you used to see. So I think that's where everything is kind of moving. Obviously, for outlets like Netflix and Hulu, those are the shows that they're looking for. Um, And they want shows that sort of people hook into and just watch in big, big gulps. Um, So that's something definitely to keep to be mindful of when when you approach this as a writer.
0: Mm -hmm. Now, talking about your own television show, uh, television shows, your TiVo, what are you currently watching uh, either for your own entertainment, you and your wife and family, or, and what, do you watch television as well for work, you know, reference, research, and, and, and again, what are you watching?
1: Um, yeah, one of the ironies of working in television is that it's so all-consuming, you often don't have time to watch television. Sure. So, uh, I try to catch up with it when I can. It's funny, I tend to watch a lot more comedies than dramas, um, mm-hmm. maybe, maybe because I work in drama, but, uh. Um, I watch a lot of different comedies. I watch everything from um, the Big Bang Theory and Modern Family to Parks and Recreation to you know, on cable on Louis Archer. Um, I loved Silicon Valley on HBO this past year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a, there's a lot of different comedies I'll watch, um, even and sketch shows as well. I love Key and Peele. I can't wait oh, yeah, for Key and Peele's back. Mm-hmm. Uh, among dramas, I'm just starting to get caught up. Uh, Last Few Days on Penny Dreadful, which I really like. Oh. Um, and thematically, it's kind of similar to our show. It's a period piece, but, you know, they do with supernatural and monsters and stuff like that. Um, obviously, I love Game of Thrones like everyone else. Right. I can't wait till that's back. Mm-hmm. Um, what else am I, what am I catching up on? I, just, I recently watched this terrific British series called Black Mirror. Oh,
0: I've never heard um, of
1: it. Oh, it's it's amazing. It's an anthology series along the lines of Twilight Zone, but every episode is about a different facet of how technology uh, affects everyday life. They, all the shows are also set slightly in the future, but not so far in the future that it's unrecognizable. And uh, the stories are incredible. It's and one of the episodes was very much could very much as well have uh, been the um, inspiration for the movie Her. Oh. Um, so it, there are stories like that there, and there's only six of them. They had two seasons, three episodes each, but they're well worth it if you can find it and, and watch them because, um, each one is a tiny little thought experiment, which is, and they're fascinating to watch. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they get really good directors and actors as well.
0: And that's uh, called
1: black mirror. Uh, yeah. Black mirror. Um, uh, I think you can find it. I'm trying to remember. It might've aired on BBC America at some point, but, uh, uh, I think you can download it from various sites, um, and uh, I'm trying to think what else is on these days. Again, it's usually I'm catching up months afterwards. So, right. Uh, um, Penny Dreadful is the latest thing I think
0: mm-hmm.
1: that I'm getting caught up on. Um, what else? What else is out there? I Again, I can't even remember.
0: Um, let's see the. Breaking Bad ended fairly recently. Uh, House
1: of Cards. Uh, you yeah, had- I still have to... Oh, uh, yeah. I, I'm, I haven't watched the second season More Orange is the New Black, but I really like oh, that as well. Yeah, yeah. That was that was terrific. House of Cards, I still have to watch. Mm-hmm. I've heard great things about it. Mm-hmm. I'd love to see that as well. Um, yeah, that's one of the things these days is there's so much good stuff on. It's Absolutely. To, it's hard to um, keep on top of everything. Absolutely. Um, I know that this weekend, I guess, Outlander is premiering, Mm -hmm. as is uh, The Nick, and I want to watch both of them. I just don't know when I'm going to have time. (laughs) Um, You'll have to save up a few
0: episodes, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely. And the thing with talking about uh, Black Mirror or Mirror Black, I I don't remember.
1: Black Mirror. Black
0: Mirror. The BBC America stuff, they have a lot of great stuff like Orphan Black and
1: uh, Sherlock. I love Orphan Black. That's right. I just We just finished Orphan Black. Orphan Black is one of those shows that we have to stay on top of. Both my wife and I love it. Yeah. So, yeah, we finished that season as well.
0: But the problem is that their seasons, are so, BBC's seasons are so short that it, yeah, it, it, oh, it's almost frustrating.
1: Well, Orphan Black, how long was Orphan Black? Wasn't it a the full 13 episodes? Um, I mean, Penny Dreadful, I know, is eight. Yeah. It's short. It might have um, been,
0: but I know a lot of their TV series, like the Sherlock ones, are way too short.
1: Well, Sherlock's only three episodes yeah, each, yeah. but they're two hours each, right? So no, they're, yeah. they're, they're a little big of, a bit of a bigger chunk.
0: Right. Yeah,
1: I mean, there's something to be said for that model, too. I mean, there's sure. something very satisfying about watching a show take just the right amount of time to tell its story rather than drawing it out to some artificial order, Um and i, I kind of like that, you know, like I said, black mirror is only each season was only three episodes, but mm-hmm. that was that was perfectly fine, and it was kind of enough to whet your appetite for the next one right um so and i and i've done I've worked on shows that have every that have had short orders and shows that had twenty two twenty three episode seasons and uh I gotta say creatively it's a lot better when you can sort of have a shorter order right because there's always a point somewhere around episode. 16, 17, 16, that you're really dragging your feet, um, not just creatively, but sort of physically. It's right. kind of exhausting at that point. So um, I, I like the sort of British model of, of doing things.
0: hmm But as a fan, I think sometimes you just wish that there was more, but I understand and, and I agree. Yeah, but you always want to be left
1: wanting more rather than feeling like you've had too much. That's it's true. Like with, you know, a buffet.
0: <laughs> right. Um, and now, what is the biggest writer's room you've ever worked in, and what's the smallest?
1: Sleepy Owl is a pretty big room. Um, we've got, I can't remember, close to about a dozen people in there, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I think um, when you get a room that big, it usually helps to break up into smaller rooms. It's hard to get things done with a really massive room with too many voices in a room, so we'll often break up into two, even three rooms at times to work on separate episodes. Um, the uh, I worked for a short period of time uh, before Sleepy Hollow on uh, the Fox show Hieroglyph, and that was what was considered a mini room. There were only four of us in there, mm-hmm. but we weren't really breaking a whole season yet. We were sort of brought on board to help um, shape the season bible as well as a few preliminary episodes. So that was that was the tiniest room I my in, but um, the rooms I think these days tend to be around seven, eight people maybe, Mm -hmm. sometimes six. Uh, I find that to be plenty. I mean, I think um, there's some, I remember when I was in magazines reading some report about the optimum size, optimum meeting size you have, and I think it was around seven. If you get too many more people, there there are always going to be people who won't participate because it's too big, and if you get too few, you don't have enough people to have a fruitful generation of ideas kind of thing. So Mm -hmm. um, six to seven is always kind of good for me.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, now, we touched on this earlier before the interview began, I had read on IMDB that you appeared as a wise man lifeline on Who Wants to be a Super Millionaire, <laughs> and I, I just wanted to relay that story again, I thought it was funny.
1: Yeah, there was a time back when, uh, when Who Wants to be a Millionaire was a big prime time success, and they did a second cycle of it called Who Wants to be a Super Millionaire, which I think they raised the prize money to like $10 million or something, and they added a whole bunch of new lifelines. And one of the ones at that time was uh, uh, something they called the Three Wise Men. At a certain point, if the contestant wanted, they could consult three supposed experts and get their advice on the question. So I, I was an editor at People at the time, and um, I got a request through our PR department to be on the show. So I figured, why not, and went on. And uh, it was kind of, it was, it was fine. They, they, put, uh, they put us in this tiny little hole. We were shut off. We couldn't see or hear the contestant or the questions beforehand. We were on the stages, but we were in this sort of, in the uh, soundproof room. And at a certain point, a light goes on, and Regis Philbin comes on and says, "Wise men, are you ready?" And then they ask us a question, and we have a minute. I think it was less than a minute. It might have been 30 seconds to kind of chime in, and then and then it all goes black again, <laughs> and that was it. So. Uh, it was uh, it was kind of interesting. I mean, this was back when the show was really at the height of its popularity. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was my brush with Regis <laughs> Philbin. Uh,
0: now, did you happen to help anyone win a million dollars or lose? Uh... Uh,
1: we got called upon to answer, to help them, help one of the contestants with the political question. It had to do with, like, uh, I think the question was about... Um, which state's two Republican senators voted not to impeach Bill Clinton. And I think we managed to help the contestant narrow it down to two choices, which is all they really wanted us to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And they were, and he ended up picking incorrectly between, between the two choices, but mm-hmm. we got him that far. So, right. And then at the, and then at that point he actually should have used his other lifeline to which would have gotten him to the right answer, but I guess he wanted to save it. Right. So, um, uh, yeah. <laughs>
0: um, now, we have a, a section of the podcast called Rapid Fire. Just three uh, really quick questions that I want to throw your way. Uh-oh. Okay. The first being, which former resident of Tenafly, New Jersey, uh, would you most like to buy a drink for? New York Yankees Hall of Famer Yogi Berra, Academy Award-winning actress Mira Zorvino, or big band legend Glenn Miller, if he was still alive? <laughs>
1: Uh, I gotta go with Yogi Berra. I mean, how can you turn down an opportunity to sit down with Yogi? And That's true. There are some more Yogiisms.
0: Yeah, unless you were a huge big band fan, I just threw that in there, but yeah, no, absolutely.
1: No, they're um, all good. I think, uh, I think I'll go with, uh, the old professor.
0: Um, now, who would make for the most interesting interview? Albert Pujols for Sports Illustrated, Kim Kardashian for People, or
1: you for Entertainment Weekly? <laughs> <laughs> Definitely not me. <laughs> um, I will go with Albert Pujols. Okay. Uh, I've got a baseball theme going here, but I guess, uh, yeah, I was always a big baseball fan, so it's kind of fitting.
0: And have you ever, uh, in, in all your work with Sports Illustrated and ESPN, have you uh, worked
1: with or met
0: Albert Pujols before?
1: I haven't, no. Okay. I, I, I finished covering baseball by the time he sort of burst under the scene. Okay. So uh, I've never met Albert Pujols. Uh,
0: and seeing as how you're in Carolina, uh, which is your favorite style of barbecue, Kansas City, Texas, Memphis, or Carolina?
1: Well, I've got to say Carolina, right? <laughs> I mean, I can't, I'm here in North Carolina. <laughs> so, uh, no, but uh, it's funny. Someone just told me a couple of great places around here to go to, so I'm, I may check a Carolina barbecue place out tonight, in fact. Cool. Um, so, uh, yeah, Carolina barbecue, definitely.
0: Awesome. And do you uh, have any advice for aspiring screenwriters, or is there anything else you'd like to share?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's writing is a skill like anything else. It requires a lot of practice. I mean, you just kind of keep doing it. I mean, it's kind of trite, and you hear it a lot, but it's true. I, the as I said before, my first couple of scripts were produced for Dirt, but like in hindsight, I'm, I'm fairly certain they were they were incredibly terrible. <laughs> um, but like, I had the incredible good fortune of working with some great people at Dirt who were really patient and helped me through it. And the next few scripts were a little less terrible. Uh, and that's how it's going to be for a while. But the the goal is to keep doing it until each one is slightly less terrible. But uh, you can only do that if you keep doing it. And so, um, just keep writing. That's really the biggest thing I could say. You know, I first when I first started writing scripts, I thought it wasn't I didn't think it was going to be as hard as it, as it turned out to be because I had been a writer for all those years for magazines. But it was a different set of muscles, and it was one of those things that you just had to keep exercising. So um, that's kind of the biggest thing. And then the thing I said earlier about writing a uh, spec is um, follow your heart, really. And that doesn't mean what a lot of people think it means. It doesn't mean just sort of in, be indulgent. It just means do something that keeps your interest because if you're not going to be interested in the story, no one, no one will be, and it'll, it'll show through on the page. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, and before I let you go last season, uh, there was sort of a Twitter beef in jest, of course, uh, all in fun between the writing staffs of sleepy hollow, which is at sleepy writers and elementary at elementary staff. Uh, we interviewed elementary co EP Jason Tracy a couple of weeks ago. And now that we have you on, do you have anything to say to the gang over at elementary on behalf of the crew at sleepy hollow?
1: uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think whether I should be provocative or not, but <laughs> no, i want to take the higher road and say, you know, we're welcome to any and all challenges from any writing staff, elementary or not, but uh, uh, yeah, we'll, we're uh, not ones to back down to a challenge, so uh, just basically I'm telling them to bring it on.
0: <laughs> so elementary staff and uh, whoever else, bring it on, the Sleepy Hollow Writers are ready for you. Um, thanks Exactly. Thanks for coming on the show, Albert. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks, Kevin. Thanks for having me. Uh,
0: you can follow Albert on Twitter, at Magic Branch. Um, where did you come up with that, anyway? Magic Branch.
1: That's something I came up with really fast. It's actually the name of my uh, loan-out company when I oh. had to um, file papers. And uh, I had, like, a few minutes, I think. And uh, it was the name of a uh, when, my, when my children were younger, we used to make up stories and stuff, and it happened to be the name of a story that my kids and I had uh, come up with and Made a little book out of. So uh, that just came to mind and it kind of stuck.
0: Um, and if you have any questions about the craft or business of writing, you can send us an email to ask at and or send us a tweet to at scriptscribes. There's no and in the middle there, just at scriptscribes. And thanks for listening.